to the face of my enemy. I see my brother, I see my sister. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother, I see my sister. Welcome again to Trinity Heights. Happy Father's Day. Okay, so this morning we are in the second part of our series, which we started last week, called The Things That Shape Us. And essentially what we're doing in this series is we are looking at the sort of basic Christian disciplines, you know, the things like praying and reading the Bible and taking communion and baptism and, and um, witnessing to our faith to the world around us. And it's amazing because you can walk into any church and any Christian community around the world and you will find them in some way, shape or form practicing these things. And so what we're asking is, what do they mean? Why do they do this? Uh, What do we think is happening when we do these things? And so we began to answer this question last week um, and we, we began by thinking about those people who Sometimes there are people in our lives who leave a very, very clear impression. And there is no question in your mind about who this person is and what this person is about. It's like they're they're a person in high definition, that they're a person in in high resolution, is is the phrase that we were using last week to describe describe what's going on. Um, And and so along comes Jesus, and Jesus is, if you like, the the most clearly defined person in human history, and and it's as if he's presenting goodness in the highest resolution possible. And the amazing thing is, as we said last week, is that, that this high resolution, high definition person says, I am going to give you my spirit. What does it mean for Jesus to give us his spirit? Well, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit wants to take these different disciplines of praying and reading the Bible and sharing communion and baptism and witnessing to our faith to the world around us and and use these things to turn us into those high-definition people and to make us, to shape us, into the kind of people who can present God's goodness to the world around us in the highest resolution possible. Okay, so that's, that's where we've been so far. That's what this series is about. And so this week we're going to start looking more at some more specific things, right? So this week we're going to begin by looking at communion. And we're going to think about how communion starts to, to turn us into those high-resolution people. For many, communion is a sort of a boundary marker. It's one of those things where you just, it decides who's in and who's out. Who's a Christian? Who's not a Christian? Who's a believer? Who is not a believer? Who's a skeptic? It's a, it's a, uses a, a boundary marker. And so what you'll find is that many churches will do their best to what they call fencing the table. Fencing the table. Um, and so what does that mean? It means that during the service, you, you'll get to the point where we're about to take communion, and the pastor or whoever's leading the service will say something about who qualifies to take part in this meal right? Um, who gets to take the bread? Who gets to take the, the wine? 
Uh, and it usually has something to do with maybe church membership, maybe to do with confession and profession of a particular faith, uh, or, or maybe a, um, uh, your baptism, or, or sometimes three, right? Um, and, and first of all, I, I just need to say that these are really, really vitally important things. I, I think these are really important things. And, and I, I say that, and this is just, you know, that's um, an understatement, right? Uh, to, to be a member of the body of Christ, to have a confession of faith of Jesus is Lord, to, uh, to, to believe in the resurrection, to, to, um, to, to be baptized into this community, the community of the church. Vitally important things. It's just that at Trinity Heights, we don't make those things the prerequisite for taking part in communion. We don't fence the table in that particular way. Why not? Why don't we do that? Well, there's a couple of ways that we could come at this question. And, and we could come at it from, from one angle. We could come at it through the story of church history, right? Western church, mostly Western church history. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, in 1529, in order to bring the Reformed and Evangelical churches of Switzerland and Germany together, church leaders held a conference at Marburg. And they discussed all sorts of issues, but they left the most controversial issue right till the end. And what was the most controversial issue that they left to the end? Okay, right, communion, right? The, you, so they left communion to the end. Now, both groups of people rejected the Roman Catholic view uh, of communion. Um, which is transubstantiation. This is, this is the idea that, that um, you, you probably know what this is. You, the bread becomes Christ's actual body, and the wine becomes Christ's actual blood. The bread, the bread and the wine uh, work, work that way. Well, both groups rejected transubstantiation, but uh, they couldn't agree on what the alternative should be. So Luther uh, had the real presence view of things, which says that, that no, the, the bread and the wine don't turn into the actual body and blood, but Christ's presence is there in a very special way over, under, with these elements of bread and wine, the real presence view. And then he had Zwingli, on the other hand, saying, no, no, this, this, this is a memorial view, uh, and, and so what this says is that this is a symbol. The bread is a symbol of Christ's body. The wine is a symbol of Christ's blood, and it's there to help us memorialize and remember Jesus and what he has done for us. In the end, they couldn't agree. They couldn't see eye to eye. They went their separate ways, and the churches never did accomplish the unity that they were seeking. Well, that's just one example and three different views of communion and the way it has been rather controversial uh, in the story of, of the church over 2,000 years. Well, that's one direction we can come at it. But what if instead of working backwards through all the twists and turns of church history, where communion has become the center of controversy, where there's been division and people have gone their separate ways and divided over this, and, and, and where we have these entrenched denominational differences and there's all this theological, Christian theological scaffold that has gone up around this practice. What happened is if instead of working backwards through history and then stepping with Jesus into the upper room, what if we came at it from the other direction and we, we came at it from the context of Middle Eastern, the Middle Eastern world. And, and, we, and we came at it more specifically from the context of the Hebrew Bible and, and, and the Jewish mindset. And then we follow this Middle Eastern Jewish man into the upper room and then look around the table. 
What if we did it that way? So you see what I'm saying? We, we don't have to work backwards through church history. What if we came at it from this other direction? Uh, that, that's what I'd like to do now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some stuff which I know some of you have heard before, some of you haven't. It's worth me repeating this because I think this is absolutely fundamental to understanding what communion is all about. And so as a way of stepping into to the Middle East and that culture, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, this story which I've shared before. The story is told of Lawrence of Arabia, who is sitting in a Bedouin tent, and dinner is being served up. And the conversation around the table is about him. And the Bedouins around the table are discussing how they might kill Lawrence of Arabia. But, but um, he's got his desert garb on, so they don't know it's, it's him sitting with them. So what do you do when you're having dinner with people, but the conversation around the table is about how they're going to kill you? Right? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He waits for the food to be served up. He takes some of the food. He waits for others to take a mouthful or two of the food. And he takes his desert garb off. He looks up and he says, I am Lawrence of Arabia, whom you were trying to kill. And the Arabs around the table are absolutely horrified because they can no longer kill him. Not because they lost a drop on him, right? Not because, oh no, he's heard our plans. Now we've lost the element of surprise. Nothing to do with that. Because eating together, sharing a meal from the same table was such a powerful symbol and practice, and practice of reconciliation and restoration of relationship, they could no longer kill him because that would be a cultural taboo. It would be anathema. You just don't do that. In the Middle East, there's actually a, a more formal practice of this, uh, and it's called sula, and it's, uh, it's still, pra still practiced in uh, certain uh, more remote villages. And what happens is when there has been a feud between two villages or there's been fighting between two families in the village uh, and, and they want to bring an end to this, they want to form an alliance, they want to become friends, they want to say we're with you and we're for you, you know what they do? They share this meal, which is a meal of reconciliation, sula, and it is bread and it is salt and other things and they eat together and once they share that meal from the same table, it's over. The, the, the fighting is over, the feud is declared, it's at an end, the hostilities are ended, right? So they share this meal. Now, it's interesting because this Arabic word sula, if you trace its etymology, right, if you trace it, it back to its origins, uh, we trace it back to the word, the Hebrew word shulshan. So the Arabic word sula can be traced, it's etymologically, back to the word shulchan, which is Hebrew, for table, table. And in Hebrew culture, just as much as in the rest of the Middle East in general, eating together from the same table is a symbol and sign of and practice of reconciliation. Um, so to take, take, for example, Psalm 23. Some of you know this off by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. I starve and they rod, they come for me. Then you get to verse 6. And what does verse 6 say? Anyone? He lays a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, as a Westerner, what I, what I, you know, I think is that, oh, this, this means I get to, to be relaxed and eat and chill out while my enemies are trying to get me, but I'm going to be able to just eat. I'm going to gorge myself and I'm going to thumb my nose at my enemies. But actually, this has nothing to do with gloating over my enemies. What this means is, through the eyes of the Middle East and Jewish eyes, that God is going to make a way for me to be reconciled with my enemies. He's going to make it so that I won't have any enemies. He lays a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
And so Jesus, immersed in this Middle Eastern and, and this Jewish culture, right? What, what does he do? He is, when, when we get to the New Testament, we see that so much of his ministry, he's, eat, he's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and with Zacchaeus and he feeds the 5,000, right? He's always eating every other page. And then what you discover is that when he when he's wants to say what it's like to be reconciled to God, he looks around the dinner table and he sees his friends enjoying each other's company. And he sees them enjoying the food. And he says, you know what? The kingdom of heaven is going to be just like this. It's going to be like a great banquet where people will come from the east and the west and they will take their place at the table. At the table. And of course, in, in Revelation, we have that wonderful picture of what it's like to be reconciled to God. And, and it says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door and I don't really know how wide you have to open that door. Maybe you just get a jar and he gets a foot in, right? But, but I will come in and I will eat with you and he with me. This, this, is, this whole thing, this eating together, is this symbol and it is a practice of reconciliation. And it's only, I think it's only after all of this, once we appreciate, once we've immersed ourselves a little bit in, in Middle Eastern culture and Hebrew culture, that we can then follow this Hebrew, this, this Middle Eastern Jewish man into the upper room where Jesus first institutes the Last Supper, or the, 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 the communion, the Last Supper, right? And so, and so what, do we, what do we notice Jesus does? He says, this is the time in the evening where I'm going to have to ask some of you to leave. You know who you are, so we're just going to wait, and they wait in, in awkward silence. Come on, Judas, out. And Peter, you're about to deny me. And actually, come to think of it, the rest of you are going to desert me. You're also theologically confused, and you're completely immorally bankrupt, so many of you. So, so just out. You know, this is not for you. That's <laughs> weird, right? He doesn't do that. If, if you come in with this Middle Eastern Jewish man into this room, where he does what we find very pointedly is Judas is right there in the room with them. People with no real clear profession of faith, no real understanding of who Jesus is, Judas has decided he's not the Messiah at all. The others, it's all hanging in the balance. One's about to go and betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Peter's about to deny him. The disciples are about to desert him. This gives a different ring to what Jesus means when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Does Jesus, this is a question, and I want you to ponder this this week. Does Jesus, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, mean eat some bread, drink some wine, and spare me a few thoughts while you're doing it? And that's actually quite hard, isn't it? Because you try and think holy, concentrate and have holy thoughts while you're taking the bread and the wine, and, and then you're distracted, and then you feel bad that you, you weren't really focused, right? So is this, this is how I used to do communion. And, and so is, is it, eat some bread, drink some wine, and, and try and spare me a few thoughts while, while you do that? Is that what he's saying? Or when he says, do this in remembrance of me, does he mean, do this? In remembrance of me, what I'm doing right here, the symbol and practice of reconciliation and restoring relationship, do this, reach out to the person, even if it's a last-ditch attempt to the person who's about to betray you. Do this in remembrance of me. Reach out and extend the grace of God to the person who is about to deny you three times. Do this in remembrance of me. Reach out and extend the grace of God and the hand of friendship to the people who are about to desert you and deny you and betray you. Do this in remembrance of me. Reach out to the utterly theologically confused. Do this in remembrance of me right here. Extend the hand of friendship and reconciliation and the grace of God to the people who are morally dubious. Do this in remembrance of me. We can't divorce communion um, from the upper room and the people who Jesus is sitting with. If we do that, 
so much of the poignancy and power of that moment where the, the irony of what Judas is doing, the taboo of what Judas is doing is, is lost on us, right? Eating at the same time as him. That if, if, we, if we divorce it from, from all of this, that then, then the power and the poignancy of, of the, the Pharisees constantly pointing, you're eating with the wrong people. These are the morally dubious. These are the theologically confused. These are the prostitutes. These are the tax collectors. It's, it's all, that, that, that accusation is sort of just what it doesn't, doesn't carry the weight. The church is an exclusive body. And we are defined in part by a very exclusive task. And what is that exclusive task? The exclusive task is to reconcile the world to God and to each other. That's our exclusive task. Not just to symbolize, but to practice reconciliation. And this Middle Eastern, Jewish, Jesus practice begins with sitting down. It begins with sitting down and sharing a meal. And so every time we share this meal, it's meant to fuel our imagination for the possibilities of being reconciled to the people we thought we could never be reconciled with never be allied with, never be friends with. But if we can sit together here, perhaps this can spill over into the rest of our lives. Um, I know someone will say, well, what about Corinthians? What about Corinthians, where Paul says there's some people who eat the meal in an unworthy manner? Good point. I'm glad you brought that up. So, <laughs> it's good, isn't it, when you're asking yourself the questions and you answer the question you can answer. So, so, <laughs> so in Corinthians, when Paul says some people are eating in an unworthy manner, you know what's going on there? There are rich people and there are poor people. And there are people with plenty to eat, and there are people with scraps. And there are people who, are, who, when they arrive, they're important. They're the rich people. We're going to start the meal. Oh, but what about those poor people? They're showing up. They're, we don't even wait for them. We're not going to wait for them. Nah, let's not wait for them. Let's just gorge ourselves and eat together without them. That's the unworthy manner. It's, it's the reintroduction of, of some sort of weird classes, classism or tribalism back into the body of Christ. That's the unworthy manner. We're an exclusive people a people who insist on inviting everybody to come and taste and see the Lord is good. And, and this is actually, in, in, in Trinity Heights, we've had, I've had several people, quite independently of each other, have told me that this, as they came in as total skeptics, they were going to come once because their friends invited them and out of politeness and they weren't coming again. And a key moment for them was coming in, taking communion, and being realizing that, wait, you're saying if I'm attracted to Jesus in some way, if there is something about his self-sacrificing love and compassion that I'm drawn to, then come and join us in this meal. And they did, and they've been joining us ever since. Let this meal fire our imaginations for that reconciliation that we all long for. Have a great week.